I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. The data we generate as individuals and as a society offer powerful tools from cutting-edge machine learning to better understanding our own behavior. But we also know our data-driven tools can be privacy-infringing, can perform poorly, and can even be dangerous. So how do we get the tech we want? Today, in an episode that first aired in March of 2023, confronting bias in tech for better tools. And health-related data can be incredibly sensitive, but as more and more of our healthcare goes online, is data privacy at risk? The number of telehealth apps grew rapidly during the pandemic to meet a new demand for virtual healthcare services. Instead of going into a clinic or a doctor's office, access to a physician or mental health services looks like downloading an app or visiting a website, or using messaging apps, phone calls, and video chats. But this convenience may come at the cost of data privacy. Many of the commercial companies that run virtual care platforms collect, share, and use information uploaded by patients, according to a 2022 report on the business practices of commercial virtual healthcare services in Canada. Dr. Cheryl Spithoff was the project lead. I'm a family doctor and a researcher at Women's College Hospital and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. So we received a grant from the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada to explore how virtual care platforms are handling the data they collect through their platforms. So we interviewed 18 individuals who were affiliated with these platforms, largely as employees, some were contractors or consultants, and to academics. And then we asked them questions about how the platform gathered data, how they held it, what they did with the data, what they saw as the benefits of these different data uses, and what kind of concerns they had. Healthcare data is supposed to be some of the most protected. So what's happening with these virtual care platforms? As far as we can tell from our interviews and the study that we've done, um, they're not selling your personal health information as they define it. Okay. So they define this pretty narrowly. It's the information that they collect when you speak to a nurse practitioner or to a physician for your health care issue. So the other forms of data that they collect, um, one is sign up and registration information. So this might be your name, it's, um, email addresses, phone numbers, things like this, when you first register with the platform. Okay. And according to participants in our study, they define this as personal information, but not personal health information. I see. Same thing with um, user data, like IP addresses, um, device identifiers, things like that, and then also de-identified health information. Personal health information was generally only used to provide health care, although there are a couple exceptions to that, whereas the other forms of data that they defined as not PHI are not personal health information, which, you know, it's arguable. They used or is considered to be on the business side and used for commercial reasons. Okay. A main reason there was targeted advertising. 
promoting different products and services through their platforms, promoting third-party products and services. So, but they're not selling sort of information about medical conditions per se. They're selling right. things like contact information. Now, you, you mentioned that there were exceptions. What are those exceptions? So what we did find in some situations that they were using personal health information to promote pharmaceutical products by adjusting patient care pathways. So they didn't seem to be providing that information to other companies, but participants described how pharmaceutical companies paid their platform to analyze data, adjust patient care, like the timing of visits, timing of lab tests, frequency of reminders, all with the goal of increasing uptake of a drug or a vaccine. And then continually running analyses and seeing if this made a difference and trying to optimize that for the pharmaceutical company partner. So they weren't sharing the data with the company, but they were using the data to essentially promote a product by adjusting patient care, affecting clinical decision making. How That sounds like something that you ought not to be able to do. Is that legal? Good question. It's not entirely clear to our team whether this is legal or not. Um, in the U.S., there was an example a couple years back when electronic medical record company there took money from a pharmaceutical company, Purdue Pharma, and they put prompts in the EMRs there to encourage physicians to prescribe more long-acting opioids. And as we know, Purdue Pharma produced a long-acting opioid, OxyContin. Mm -hmm. And they got in trouble with for this because they were interfering with cl clinical decision-making, were fined, I don't know, $150 million or so, and you know, told you can't do this. Can you walk me through a scenario of just registering for your average telehealth app? Right. So there's some that are phone apps and other ones that are a website. The majority that we came across were website applications. If you go to the website, um, there would be a button there that would say sign up. And then you could put in your, you know, your information in there. And then the next step, we didn't, we didn't do this ourselves. But the next step generally would be request an appointment with a physician or nurse practitioner. I see. So once I've granted permission for a virtual care platform or, or telehealth uh, site or app to access and collect my data, how does it get packaged for sale? It doesn't always get packaged for sale, but generally what was explained to us is there was the registration data and that was stored in one database with names, email addresses, phone numbers, things like that. And that data, some companies would just use internally to market to you. You, there were ways that you could opt out of that marketing, but it didn't appear to be any ways that you could opt out of having your data used in the first place to design those marketing campaigns, Okay. according to participants and from what we read through the privacy policies. The other form of data was the user data. So a lot of companies collect this, or almost every company seemed to collect this according to participants, was you know, your browsing information. So your IP addresses and your cookie history, things like that. Now, companies didn't appear to link that to your identified information that they had on you, but they would share it with Google, Facebook, large analytics companies. And in return, they would get, you know, information on who was visiting their site, not names, but just kind of like demographic breakdown. And then Google and Facebook and analytics companies are able to link that information to a uniquely identified user in their database where they have, you know, big profiles on people. And that's what they use for targeted marketing to you. And that's, you know, essentially what Google and Facebook are all about is, you know, that's how they make their money is through that targeted advertising. 
And our concern too is, I mean, you're sharing, you know, information, this person access to health website with these analytics companies, Mm -hmm. but some of these virtual care platforms only provide one type of service. So some are focused on, you know, HIV prevention services, some are focused on mental health services. And then when this is being shared with an analytics company, they have insight into the nature of someone's health concern. Mm -hmm. Yes. So in the cases where it's shared with an analytics company, is there any kind of anonymization of the data that happens? Generally, on the end of the virtual care platform, they don't know, as one participant explained to us, who's who. Okay. But when it goes to Facebook and to Google, they're able to link it to your profile or my profile. And it may not be ordered by my name, but it has enough information on there that, you know, you could clearly, if someone was to break into it or hack in, they could clearly know who that was. And then that kind of information is used for targeted advertising, it's used for political advertising, um, things like that. I thought that health data was supposed to be particularly better protected, but I guess the issue here is that it's not strictly speaking health data. Yes, it's unclear from the legislation whether this data should be called personal health information. Mm -hmm. We argue that it would because it's gathered in the context of providing a health service. Yeah. But it also is a little strange. Like if someone comes to my clinic and sees me, I'm not going to take their names and email addresses and phone numbers and say, oh, this is personal information because I've separated it from the health information and I can use it differently. Like, yes, to me, that doesn't make any sense. And I think most people would, would, would agree with that. And that seems to our interpretation to be in line with what the legislation is intending as well. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about what the potential risks are here for, for somebody whose, whose information is being kept or sold? Yeah. So one is people are vulnerable when they seek a health service and they're trusting this as, you know, they're getting a health service. So they might be more susceptible to the marketing messages that are coming from these platforms. That's one thing. It may interfere with their autonomy, their ability to make decisions that are in their own self-interest. Mm-hmm. And then we are particularly concerned that, you know, patient care pathways may be influenced by the pharmaceutical industry for commercial gain, interfering with clinical decision-making, and participants were concerned about this as well, that this may be affecting care. Mm -hmm. The other thing, yeah, was privacy. A lot of companies, if they didn't share it externally, they were sharing it with other subsidiaries in the larger corporation, or, you know, some were sharing it externally as well. And de-identified data as well can also cause harms, even when identifiers like names and postal codes and dates of birth are removed, th- these data are often used to create algorithms, artificial intelligence systems, automatic decision-making systems. And these can incorporate social biases. And then when they're used, can cause harm, discrimination, particularly harm to structurally marginalized groups. Can you expand on that last point a little bit? Yeah, so there's an example that I can provide from something that happened in the U.S. Many hospitals there use a particular commercial algorithm, and this algorithm gave or assigned patients a risk score based on their health conditions and other factors as well. And it was used to distribute resources. So if you had a higher risk score, more resources like home care and other things like that. And then when researchers looked at this algorithm, they found that for 
a similar risk score, black people were a lot sicker than white people. So they just weren't receiving the appropriate resources for their health condition. Hmm. And when they dug in and looked at the algorithm, it appeared to be because the algorithm was using past use of healthcare resources to determine who should get resources for their future needs. And this was appears to be because Black people, because of you know, structural racism, structural system factors, you know, hadn't been using a lot of healthcare resources in the past. Mm-hmm. Now, the authors argue that you know, this was inadvertent, it wasn't intentional, but it could happen all the time with these algorithms. And if they're commercial, proprietary, then there's no oversight, people might not even be you know, aware they're being used, and there's no recourse and ability for people to challenge what's happening. I mean, it can happen, of course, if, you know, in a, in a public system, too, where a research body is using them. But then at least, you know, there's more transparency around it and oversight. listening to Spark from CBC. I'm Nora Young and today we're talking about, well, the trouble with data, data privacy and data bias in our digital tech. Right now my guest is Dr. Cheryl Spitoff, a family physician and associate professor at the University of Toronto. Her research looks at the impact of commercial interests on health and the healthcare system. Do you get the sense that providers who use virtual health platforms to reach their patients' are aware of this or aware of the privacy risks? I don't think so. There was a a case in Alberta where the privacy commissioner there investigated what was happening with a virtual care platform called Babylon, which has now become a TELUS platform, and was concerned with how data were being used and that patients weren't being properly informed and some of the different ways that data were being handled. And one of the critiques was that the physicians who were involved with these platforms weren't taking proper responsibility for how the data were being handled because as data custodians, that's really their responsibility. Hmm. And I don't think a lot of physicians and nurse practitioners that work at these platforms have that understanding. There is actually a move here in Ontario to make the, the companies that provide these services, whether they're electronic medical record vendor or if they have a virtual care platform, to make them more responsible as well for what happens with data. But currently, it's really the responsibility of the health data custodian. I mean, it seems like we're often told that these technological solutions are a way of bringing medical services, you know, rolling them out more broadly for a lower cost. So what improved data privacy protections would you like to see rolled out? Yeah, I think virtual care is an important solution. But yes, there's definitely changes that we need to make to ensure that that privacy is protected. Um, One of them would be clearly defining all the data that's collected through these platforms as personal health information. It's gathered in the context of providing a health service that deserves the same protections. Mm -hmm. Also, we found that it was difficult for patients to opt out of many of these commercial uses of their data, so data uses that aren't essential um, to the provision of healthcare. And it should be very easy that patients, you know, don't have to agree to these different uses in order to access a health service. 
Another thing that's important is providing protections for de-identified data. So right now, under uh, most Canadian legislation, once you de-identify data, you can essentially do whatever you want with it. So both the new proposed federal privacy legislation, as well as Ontario is considering new privacy legislation for the private sector, both of them are hoping or planning on bringing de-identified data within the scope of the law to give it appropriate protections and make sure that, you know, re-identification of individuals is unlikely. And what we're hoping for to see there as well, they're also addressing the use of this data. So the ways that I explained earlier, how data, the identified data can cause harm, even without re-identification, we need to think about that. How are the data being used? Does it align with how patients want their data to be used? Patients in surveys and studies, they clearly say that, you know, I'm happy to have my data used for research, for health system improvement, but they're very reluctant to have it used for commercial reasons without their explicit consent. But will cracking down on patient privacy curb commercial interest in telehealth at a time when we're looking at investing more into these sort of technical solutions? It's possible. It's, I mean, I can't say for sure, but it does seem like companies view this as a revenue stream. So, you know, they're getting paid some money from the government or from people paying out of pocket to access these services. But then in addition, they're using the data, you know, for marketing their products or other companies' products. So it's possible that there'll be less of an incentive if they're not able to use data for those reasons anymore. That you know, raises the question then, is it more appropriate to have, you know, nonprofit or public models of virtual care or a model where virtual care is really integrated into ongoing care? Yeah. So that's what, I mean, right now it's difficult because we don't have enough primary care providers, physicians and nurses. So a lot of people are, you know, turning to these services. But if we had a situation like the Netherlands where 99% of people had a family doctor, then everybody could access virtual care through their family doctor. And in that situation, it's the clinical team who's making decisions about how the data are used, whether or not to promote a drug or vaccine through there. It's not the pharmaceutical industry. And so it addresses a lot of those issues. Like yeah. At my clinic, we're not, you know, monetizing our data. Sure. And I, I imagine that very few clinics are. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just thinking about the sort of explosion of what we might think of as kind of quasi-medical data, like all the things that track your fitness, your sleep, your periods, and so forth. Even if your phone has robust privacy protections, you might be using third-party apps. Do you think we need to think more broadly about, I guess, what constitutes sensitive data or what constitutes health data, given the explosion of new technology out there? We do, because we've historically thought about health data is that narrow little um, definition of the data collected, you know, by a hospital or a nurse practitioner or a family physician. Whereas now, like you're saying, it's clear it's much broader and that information can be just as sensitive. Yeah. And just finally, if privacy can be improved in the virtual care space, would you like to see telehealth become a more central part of the healthcare system? I think it's an essential part of our healthcare system. I would say for me about maybe 20% of the visits that I have with patients are virtual, maybe maybe a little bit higher, maybe 30%. And then for our urgent care that we run out of our clinic, maybe about 10%. So it definitely has a role. And we know that inappropriate situations when it's something that can be looked after over like over the phone or through video patients prefer it and there's a lot of times that it just doesn't make sense you know, I need to listen to someone's lungs or look in their ears but for the cases you know especially it's follow-up for you know health tests or like a mental health reasons like doing it over video or over the phone is just as as appropriate of a way to provide that health care service 
And I realize not everybody has access to that. Um, so we need to find ways to ensure that everybody does. Thanks so much for your insights on this. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Dr. Cheryl Spithoff is a family physician at Women's College Hospital and an assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. virtual appointments, tech plays a role in every part of the healthcare experience, from research to diagnoses to treatments. And the data that's collected along the way sets the course for future care. But what if it wasn't a human that used research data to come up with a treatment plan? What if it was artificial intelligence? Kachin Gainty wrote about the history of data collection in healthcare and the role machine learnings played in an article for The Conversation. It's called From a Deranged Provocateur to IBM's Failed AI Superproject, the controversial story of how data has transformed healthcare. Kachin is a senior lecturer in the history of science, technology and medicine at King's College London. Data collection in medicine began really in the early 20th century, and it really was about amassing lots and lots of records from various medical institutions or asking different medical practitioners to send in cases that looked as though they belonged to a particular category, a particular diagnostic category. The idea is that if you can amass enough information about a particular disease and then sort of go through and analyze that information, you'll be able to be more specific about both diagnosis and treatment. And this was incredibly revolutionary for medicine because prior to that point, it really operated as this kind of system where a doctor would see a patient and the patient would say, these are the symptoms I have, and the doctor would draw on their own sort of anecdotal experience and say, oh, I think you've got, you know, X disease or something like that. Whereas after these kind of, this kind of data compilation really starts to happen, you start to see the kind of sharing of information about how to diagnose and how to treat. And it means that there's a higher standard of care sort of across the board for everybody who's diagnosed with a particular kind of disease. So it's really, really critical to the foundation of modern medicine. Computers start to come into medicine for all sorts of reasons, sort of in the 1960s, 1970s, as they also are entering into other kinds of scientific enterprises. And a lot of that has to do with the big science movement of the Cold War period and the kind of growing acknowledgement that data is the right way to sort of understand our lives. But AI really comes in quite a bit later, sort of in the 1990s, and you see this real understanding in that period that medicine is actually an information management system more than it is sort of anything else. And what's better for an information management system than a computer, right? And so then increasingly you see more and more applications for computers and then for AI within medical context. But I think really the explosion of sort of AI and machine learning comes really in the 2010s, I would say. It's easy to understand why people were so excited about the prospect of AI in medicine. What patterns or surprising findings might be revealed by applying machine learning to huge amounts of medical data? And in particular, could machine learning lead to personalized medicine? My sense is that people who are really hopeful about AI think it's really going to resolve 
all sorts of issues, and particularly the very thorny and long-standing issue of how to personalize care for individual patients, which is a very large and, and thorny sort of problem. But what it has done, I think really successfully, is do a lot of the kind of information management that we used to do in this very analog sort of way much more quickly and much more effectively than humans can. For example, one of the first machine learning applications was something called OsteoDetect. And the idea was that this was something that would teach computers how to identify wrist fractures and then allow them to do that identification so that the doctor doesn't have to. And it turned out, of course, that they're very good at this. So the way that AI is currently being deployed in healthcare is very similar to the pattern recognition that was this OsteoDetect program. So other examples, it's been used to identify the symptoms and useful therapies potentially around long COVID, for example. So that's a very recent usage of AI and machine learning. And that's very good at sort of recognizing patterns and scans as well. I think one example is about cancer, you know, tumors, being able to identify tumors, and then therefore being able to suggest sort of appropriate treatments for a particular kind of tumor in a particular kind of place. Or it's been asked to do something that's really classic in the history of medicine, which is to look across many different factors and to see sort of the pattern that unites some of these factors together. For example, determining the recurrence of lung cancer, it can look at all these factors and say, these seem to be the factors in play that determine lung cancer recurrence. So that's a lot of the ways in which machine learning has been deployed recently in healthcare settings. But what that means is that while they're very good at doing that kind of work, sort of this background data work that has always been really essential to the way that we do medicine, that's a very different enterprise from the kind of machine learning work that would be applicable to patient care in very real and, and specific sorts of ways. And so one of the, the biggest flops in the history of AI is IBM's Watson computer, which was meant to kind of revolutionize, especially cancer care. Watson computer, it had this very exciting beginning as the Watson computer that appeared on Jeopardy, on the game show Jeopardy, and beat everybody. You know, so it had this very celebrity start on Jeopardy. And then after that, one of the places in which IBM saw machine learning as having real and immediate application was healthcare. One of the big problems that they ran into is that, so first of all, the kinds of data that the computer was meant to learn from were very, very different from each other and very hard to square, very hard to create the patterns it needed. But then second of all, that cancer care is not something that is universalized across everywhere where people have cancer across the world, so that in its application, it may be right for the very particular hospitals where the, the data was gathered, but it wouldn't be right for other hospitals in other parts of the world say, where those diagnoses and available treatments might look a little bit different. So it can't take into consideration local factors. And that's one of these big, really difficult issues that, you know, also prevent it from being able to do the kind of personalized care that we sort of dream of as the future of, of medicine more generally. You know, in 
the last couple of years, there have been all of these stories about how Watson was sold off for parts. So really the failure of Watson to do the thing it was meant to do in the healthcare context. It's kind of this fascinating story that really articulates sort of the problems around AI in the context of healthcare. One of the really important challenges for healthcare right now is this is this question about personalized medicine. Can we make personalized medicine work? So this idea that we are all individuals and our bodies need individual things. Can machine learning help us to understand individuals and then be able to tailor diagnoses and also therapies to individual bodies? And I think that's one of the things that people are really hopeful it it will potentially help us to resolve within healthcare but it can only be as good as the data sets that it has to work with so where those data sets replicate social and cultural bias, then it too will produce social and cultural bias in the diagnoses and the kind of treatments that it suggests. So I think that's an obvious limitation that really isn't necessarily about machine learning, but is about data more generally. And I think not only in medicine, but sort of more largely, that's the case. And so in some ways, we're working against the whole model that made modern medicine so successful in our push for personalized medicine. Because even though we can say with a large enough population that, you know, we can look at 1% and say, well, 1% share this characteristic. And so therefore, we need a therapy for that 1% of the population. And that could still be a large number of people. But if you think about, you know, half a percent or even the unique individual body, you won't be able to, you know, at the end of the day, use this data to produce unique therapies for individual people. And in some senses, what we need is a new model, you know, that that will say like, okay, if we really want to focus on individuals and we're really serious about this kind of personalized care, then we need to move away in some ways from this way of thinking about the use of data rather than trying to refine data further and further and further to the point where we can get to each individual, which is really sort of an impossibility. It's hard for a historian to talk about what the future of anything might look like. And in this case, you know, very hard for me to imagine what the future of sort of computers in medicine or AI in medicine might potentially be. You know, I think there's a lot to be said for the way that data has helped to make modern medicine very, very successful across the board. But it's not going to be the thing that turns the corner and allows us to attend to everybody's individual health needs completely successfully all the time. And if that's what we want, then, then we have to sort of rethink how we do medicine. And I really think the questions that we ask around sort of you know, tech and AI and machine learning really ultimately come back to this question about, well, is this data-driven way of doing medicine the way that we want to keep doing medicine? Or you know, do we want to do something different? Cajun Gainty is a senior lecturer in the history of science, technology, and medicine at King's College London. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. 
We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young, and this is an episode of Spark that first aired in March 2023. We're talking about data in healthcare, where the impacts of the use of our data are so personal and consequential. During the pandemic, I had breast cancer. I was really desperate for information. And so one of the places it took me was into my own electronic medical record. This is Meredith Broussard. She's a data scientist who also worked in software development and journalism. And as a data journalist, you do things like read all of the boring stuff, you know, and read the manual. And so I saw a little note in my file that said, this scan was read by an AI. And I thought, oh, that's really strange. I wonder why the AI read my scans. This took me into the wide world of AI-based cancer detection. So I devised a study, you know, in scientific terms, it's a replication study with an N of one, where I took my own mammograms and ran them through an open source AI to detect cancer in order to write about the state of the art in AI based cancer detection. So the big takeaway that I found was that the software is extremely impressive and also not necessarily ready for prime time. In 2023, Meredith released her book, More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. In it, she argues that the ways we think about tech design create deep-seated problems, not just in healthcare, but in our data-driven future. We have situations like the U.S. kidney transplant list, where for many years, if you were white, your kidney numbers would be measured in a certain way, and if you were black your kidney numbers would be measured in a different way so that white people would get onto the kidney transplant list earlier than black people, right? It was called race correction in medicine. And this to me is a really good illustration of why we need to really look at the underlying diagnostic systems before we start implementing them as algorithms, because obviously it's really unfair to put people onto the transplant eligible list earlier based on their race. Like that's just, sure. that's horrible. And in fact, medicine broadly recognizes now, oh, this is extremely unfair. The American Kidney Foundation has changed their formula for recommending. The UN has said, all right, we need to rearrange people's spots on kidney transplant lists globally. It is something that is happening, but it is a race-based problem in medicine that has been with us for a very long time. And so then is the concern that, for example, the kidney thing ends up getting encoded into these systems and perhaps even not being recognized down the road? Exactly, exactly. Because yeah. when something that is unfair is encoded in an algorithm, it becomes very difficult to see and almost impossible to eradicate. Yeah. 
So your book goes beyond healthcare. You're looking at how bias and technology affects the justice system, education, disability rights, and more. And part of the root cause is this underlying notion of techno-chauvinism, which I believe is a term you coined. So what's techno-chauvinism? Techno-chauvinism is the idea that technological solutions are superior to others. What I would argue is that it's not a competition, that instead we should think about using the right tool for the task. So sometimes the right tool for the task is absolutely a computer. Like you will pry my smartphone out of my cold dead hands, right? But other times, <laughs> yeah, other times it's something simple like a book in the hands of a child sitting on a parent's lap, right? One is not inherently better than the other. So we don't win anything by, you know, doing everything with computers instead of doing it with people. We need to think about what gets us toward a better world. Yeah. So regular listeners to the show will know we've talked about uh, the problem of bias in the training data used for machine learning. Can you just talk a little bit for me about how biases manifest in machine learning? So the biases that we see in machine learning systems are the biases that exist out in the real world. One of the things people often say is that AI is a mirror. And so we really shouldn't be surprised when bias pops up in AI systems, because we know that we live in an unequal world. One of the things that I write about is an investigation by the Markup, an algorithmic accountability reporting organization, and they found that in the U.S., mortgage approval algorithms were 40 to 80 percent more likely to reject black borrowers as opposed to their white counterparts. Now, this might be surprising, but then when we look at the system, it becomes less surprising because what is a mortgage approval algorithm doing? Well, it's making the same kinds of decisions that it sees in the data that it was trained on. What is it trained on? Who has gotten mortgages in the past? Well, we know that there's a history of financial discrimination in lending. So it's really unsurprising that we should be seeing bias in a mortgage approval algorithm. Yeah. You have the great terse formulation, which is tech is real life, right? So whatever we, whatever you find in real life, we're going to find in tech at the same time. But to me, one of the really interesting things about the book is that it goes beyond the bias in the technology itself, because you're also exploring how the problem lies in the interaction of the biased technology with the biased culture that's using the technology. Is, mm -hmm. is that a fair characterization? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We've got the bias technology and then we've got this pro-technology bias operating out in the world. And then we've got uh, lack of diversity in Silicon Valley. We've got, you know, lack of diversity in tech reporting. There are just all of these factors that are interacting with each other and, and kind of making a mess. Young. Today on Spark, we're talking about the limits of data-driven machine learning. Right now, my guest is Meredith Broussard, a data scientist and the author of the book More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. One of the reasons I wrote the book is I feel like we can do better. When you just see 
an article every few months about a facial recognition fail. You might think, oh, yeah, that's, you know, happening every so often. It's not really a huge problem. Mm -hmm. But when you see all of these stories piled up together, you really get a better sense of what are the real harms that people are suffering right now at the hands of algorithmic systems. And another thing that I do in the book is I kind of try and point readers to the thinkers who are doing really amazing work in this regard. It really creates a roadmap to, okay, how can we stop messing things up and how can we do a better job with our technical world? Yeah. Do you think these technological tools are always fixable or are there just cases where we should just be categorically saying, no, we're not using this? I think we really need to make space for refusal. I think we need to make space to say, oh yeah, this thing is not working as expected and we're going to throw it away. And that's really hard to do, especially when you've invested millions in developing mm -hmm. the system or when you've spent months of your life just trying to make something work. You know, it's it's difficult in writing, too. I mean, we have this expression in writing, kill your darlings. like, And it's about, yeah. okay, let's get rid of the words that you love most. It's really, really hard. But sometimes that's what you have to do in order to make your writing good. And sometimes what we need to do in order to make a better world with technology is we need to not use bad technology. Yeah. Or are there ways that we need to think about constraining the uses of the technology, right? So that maybe machine learning, for example, is useful for certain population level things, but we don't use it where it determines, you know, when it has an actual impact on a, an individual person's life, for example. Yeah. Like, let's not use it to grade student papers. One of the things that I read about in the book is a case a few years ago where the International Baccalaureate decided to give real students imaginary grades assigned by a machine learning system, which, of course, was a huge disaster because what the machine did was it said, oh, the poor kids, we predict they're going to get bad grades and the rich kids, oh, we think they're going to get good grades. Well, that's completely counter to everything that we want out of education. Right. Education is supposed to yeah. be the kind of thing where it's about individual effort. You get out of it what you put into it. You're not constrained by your background. Yeah. I mean, this was a, a case that happened because there were COVID restrictions on students being able to take ex actually take exams in person. Mm -hmm. And when I was reading your description of it, I mean, it's so nutty that they would have thought this was a good idea. And it really made me think, like, what, how did that happen that people thought that that would be a good idea as a way of predicting individual students' success or failure at these exams. It's quite extraordinary. It, it really is. I mean, we all made some uh, some baffling decisions during the pandemic, but that one mm -hmm. really sticks out to me as misplaced faith in algorithmic systems. Yeah. How much of a problem do you think it is that people just don't actually understand the technology, that it, it seems like the machine learning, say, is spitting out the capital T truth rather than dealing with probability or pattern matching. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a factor because these systems are really hard to understand. So I've had about a billion conversations about ChatGPT in the past couple of months, yeah. as you can imagine. <laughs> I, yes. I have explained a number of times, this is how ChatGPT works. And 
it's kind of always a surprise to people because you use technology without thinking too hard about how it's constructed. The way mm-hmm. I think about it is like, oh, I drive my car, but like I don't really think about the spark plugs, you know, or the axles when I'm driving my car. I just want to get in my car and go about my business. So I'm yeah. the kind of person who I look at technological systems and I think, oh, well, the data is coming from here and the data is coming from here. And like this user interface design decision was made and, oh, the output is going to be flawed because blah, blah, blah. I don't know. That's just how my mind works. And I think that if more people start thinking about what goes into a computational system, we'll make better decisions about what comes out of a computational system and we'll have less faith in them when we need to be skeptical. And I want Mm -hmm. to feel empowered to push back against algorithmic systems or algorithmic decisions that are bad decisions. You are listening to Spark. What we thought of as cyberspace colonized and then effectively has become what we think of as the real world. This is Spark on CBC Radio. I'm Nora Young, and right now my guest is data scientist Meredith Broussard, author of More Than a Glitch. In it, she argues we need to go beyond critiquing tech to look at ways of designing it in the public interest. So I am pro-technology in general. I sometimes like to make that clear. I like building technology, using technology. Like I'm, I'm not saying let's not use technology. What I really think, though, is we need to think about the complex interplay between society and technology. And so we need to not use computers for things that they're inappropriate for. Right. So there's kind of a fantasy of a fully autonomous world, right? Where Mm -hmm. algorithms like govern everything that is on social media and, you know, you use an app to summon a car and the car drives itself to you and then drops you off and then like disappears into the ether, right? Like there's this, this fantasy, but what I would argue instead is we need to think about human in the loop systems Mm -hmm. that, Actually, having a taxi driver is great because it's other humans in the other cars out there. And humans are really good at not getting into car crashes with each other, you know, despite what the autonomous car folks would like you to think. The amount of time that we don't crash is actually much greater than the number of times that we do crash. So, yeah, sometimes we can have autonomous systems, but... mm, most of the time, it's a human in the loop system, and we're better off thinking about that. And we're better off thinking about what are the human problems that we are bringing to the table. Yeah. Beyond AI, bias can manifest in tech in other ways. In one chapter, you talk about gender and how we came to have the sort of binary male, female, pick your gender options on forms. Can you tell me a bit about that? That story came about because I was trying to use my husband's transit pass in Philadelphia. And the transit passes used to be marked with an M or W. And I was annoyed that his pass said M and, you know, I was clearly a W and, and I wasn't going to be able to use pass. But 
one of the things that's important as a designer, as a reporter or whatever, is to think about people's experiences who are not like you, right? We need Mm -hmm. to use empathy when we're designing technological systems. And I started wondering, okay, well, what is this like for somebody who is non-binary, who's trans at the train station when you have to go up and get your sticker? Like, is that an experience where people get misgendered, where they're experiencing microaggressions. And so I started talking to people and yes, this was a big issue. And then I realized like, wait, why does there have to be a gender sticker on the train pass? And then I wondered, okay, well, this is a train pass, but what about the databases that you know all of our information is entered in? What does it feel like not to have a box in the database to tick that represents your actual gender identity. And so there are all these situations that trans or non-binary folks or intersex folks like experience out in the world that are gendered violence situations at the hands of computational systems. Going through the airport, for example, there is a pink or a blue button that the TSA agent will press when you go into the x-ray machine. And if your gender presentation does not match up to what the computer thinks should be there, then you get pulled aside and, you know, pulled into this very invasive exam. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. terrible. We should do better. Yeah. Yeah, we should do better. It also suggests to me the the kind of problem of legacy choices, right? That it's not just that you make technological choices for this particular technology, but that those choices choose, you know, M or W or whatever, end up having implications for technologies further down the road that are built on top of those earlier technologies. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so actually 1950s ideas about gender are included into our databases. I think about the way that I was taught to to write databases in college back in the day. So you had to be really stingy with storage back then because storage was expensive, right? And so one of the ways you would make your programs smaller to run faster is you would use the smallest variable possible. Well, a binary value is a zero or a one, you know, it takes up a very small unit of space inside the computer. And so I was taught to encode gender as a binary. And well, when you're thinking about gender as being just, you know, male or female, like, yes, it fits very neatly into a zero or a one. But now we understand that gender is a spectrum. We understand that gender needs to be an editable field. That's not what people believed in, you know, in the 70s when, say, university student information systems were originally set up. So the modern university really has to go in and renovate their systems to make Mm. gender editable. Yeah. But are there ever trade-offs associated with opening up these systems and making them more inclusive in the sense of, I'm just thinking that one of the things that you hear sometimes about government websites is that they're clunky to use. They're not as elegant as commercial websites. And that at least part of that, I think, is because they're designed to be accessible. They don't necessarily need um, fast internet connections. They don't necessarily, you know, they're they're designed so that uh, low vision and blind users can use them. So do we ever have to deal with trade-offs in this regard? 
I, I learned a lot about accessibility and designing for different disabilities as I was researching this book. And one of the concepts that was really important for me was the concept of the curb cut effect. Right? So the curb cut is the part at the edge of the sidewalk that slopes down into the street. And they didn't used to make sidewalks with curb cuts, right? but it was something that was implemented as a result of just ages of work by disability advocates. And curb cuts don't just benefit people in wheelchairs, right? They benefit people who are using walkers. They benefit people who are pushing babies in strollers. They benefit people who are wheeling a dolly down the sidewalk. You know, it makes it easier. And so everybody benefits from a curb cut. It's not just something that benefits people with, you know, specific disabilities. It's something that benefits everybody. So when we design for accessibility, we are actually designing for the benefit of everybody. Mm -hmm. The book ends on really an optimistic note about the possibility of us as citizens being more activist about the possibility of public interest technology. So can you talk to me about the, about this idea of like how we actually go about fixing these problems? So there are two things that really make me optimistic about the future right now. You know, the whole book is not a bummer. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> So one thing I'm really optimistic about is algorithmic auditing. For a very long time, we kind of looked at algorithmic systems as being black boxes. And we thought, oh, we can't possibly understand what was going on inside. Well, now we have better tools for cracking open the black boxes, for looking at the training data, the model file, the code used to construct the system. And we have tools, mathematical tools for measuring bias in these systems. So I'm very optimistic about that. I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about algorithmic auditing in the coming years. And the other thing I'm really excited about is a new field called public interest technology. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's about making technology in the public interest. So a public interest technologist might audit an algorithm for bias. They might work on making a website more accessible or make a website kind of more stable so that when there's the next global pandemic and a million people file for unemployment at the same time, the website won't go down, right? Like these are really important infrastructure projects that we don't think a lot about, but are really crucial to an effective functioning democracy. Yeah. Thanks so much for talking to us about it. It's a great book. Thank you, Nora. Meredith Broussard is a data scientist and the author of More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. You've been listening to Spark. The show is made by Michelle Parisi, Samarie Uhanas, McKenna Hadley-Burke, and me, Nora Young. And by Cheryl Spithoff, Kajun Gainty, and Meredith Broussard. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.